I want to read to you again the story of the rich young man and his encounter with Jesus because I want to look at it through a very different lens than that which we examined this story last week. So we're going to read from Mark chapter 10 and the 17th verse where it says this, that as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying... He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished, and they said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now. In this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. For many who are first will be last and the last first. I'm interested particularly in those last verses, that interaction with Peter. When Peter says we've left everything and Jesus says of all the things you've left, I will multiply in this age your inheritance, your possessions, everything that you will have in my kingdom, and then ultimately you'll have eternal life. I'm interested in what Jesus says there, because I think that in some ways we look at this story in almost exactly the wrong way. And I think that when we read this, and certainly our first reaction to this story, is that we think of this in in terms of sacrifice, in terms of what the young man was being encouraged to give up, to let go of, and to turn away from in order to follow Jesus. And certainly that is part of what Christ was demanding of him, what he was calling him to, that there is an element of sacrifice, it seems, certainly on the surface. And we think of it in terms of self-denial. And I think because that is exclusively how we read this story, and stories like it, when Jesus summons people, says, come follow me, then if you're not a Christian, you're thinking about what does it cost to follow Christ? I suspect that you would feel a measure of anxiety, even fear. Because you think, well, there's so much that I need to turn away from. And it's hard, isn't it, to think of what you would have to give up in order to follow Christ. It's the right way to think, but it's also then somewhat terrifying. And even for those of us who are Christian, we've walked with Jesus for a while, maybe even for years, but we're also conscious of the encroachment of the priorities of the world upon our lives, 
We're aware of what the book of Hebrews describes as the sin which so easily entangles. We're aware that there is always conflict within the heart. The pull to follow Christ and the pull to be drawn into other priorities. And you also might look at this and think of the things that you feel like God wants you to give up. The things, and you think of it in terms of sacrifice. You think of it in terms of self-denial. And there's something that can be quite terrifying about that. Now, I, I think that in a sense, this is the wrong way to read the story. Of course, there's an element of truth in that. But I think it's the wrong way. And I want to explain to you why. I think that this is only half of what's going on here. And what I mean is this. Let me give you a couple of illustrations to try and explain to you what, what I'm saying here. Think about the way that in our day and age, many people are putting off having children. We live in the age of contraception. We live in the age of choice. And as a result, the, the consequence, unsurprisingly, has been that people are having fewer and fewer children and they're delaying them as long as possible. And you ask the question, why? And I don't think it's actually that difficult to understand. It's because of everything you give up when you have a child. You give up sleep. Well, I don't. My wife does. You give up sleep. <laughs> you give up your, your, your toned body. You know, look what children has done to me. My wife looks exactly the same as when I married her, but look, I, I don't know, I can't fully explain this, but look what's happened to me. You give up freedom. You know, there was a time when we wanted to go out, we just went out. It's not so simple anymore. Some of you, out of the kindness of your heart, you offered to babysit for those of us with children. I think there should be a ministry of babysitting within the church, but there is lack of freedom. There's a lack of money. Our first, when we, especially when we had Seth, goodness me, that was a tight year. So tight. Like there was nothing spare. I had, it, I had a budget down to the penny. I do not, I'm not lying to you. It was down to the penny. You give up peace and calm. I'm an introvert. I have taken to wearing ear defenders in the house quite regularly. Sometimes earplugs and ear defenders because there is never any peace and calm when the children are around. And uh, you give up lions, you give up lazy days. You know, I don't know how you, most of you don't have kids. How did you spend yesterday? However the heck you wanted to, right? <laughs> you, give up, you give up your motorbike. I used to ride an 800cc Honda motorbike. It is not a family-friendly vehicle. I now have, I now have a mummy wagon. I, uh, you give up friends. People stop inviting you to stuff. It's true. You give up spicy food because your kids can't take it. So you make a curry, but it's the most insipid and tasteless curry you've ever had in your life. You give up travel. You give up eating out. You give up so much. What do you gain? <laughs> you gain the endless fascination of new people. What an experience that is. You, give, you gain the laughter Every day, just so much laughter. You know, just now in the worship time, my wife just pulled up to me and showed me I, Isla was, Isla's four. She's, she's looking incredibly sad in C's arms. And C just whispered to me, she can't stop thinking about Jesus dying on the cross. Like moments like that make you... So, is it worth it? I think so. I... <laughs> Think also, you know, this is true living in London. You give up so much to live in the city, don't you? You give up breathable air. You give up birds and birdsong. You give up bluebells. Where I grew up, there was a, there was a woodland just um, about 
about a mile away from where I lived, where I could, you could go walking in. In May, the woodland had a carpet of bluebells. It was the most peaceful, serene place in the world as far as I was concerned. I haven't seen a bluebell for about 20 years. There's carpets of McDonald's wrappers and needles in London. You give up so much, don't you? But what do you gain? You gain the experience of friends from all over the world. You gain the fascination of of a world city with extraordinary architecture, the endless exploration. I feel like I have not even come close to exhausting what makes London interesting. You gain the museums. You gain... Food. If you don't have children, you can try some of that stuff. You gain the coffee, you gain exploration. It's extraordinary what you gain. I love London. I'm absolutely passionate about living in this city. And I sometimes hop back to the stuff I've turned away from. But I think of living here primarily in terms of gain. And uh, listen, this is what I'm trying to get across to you. This is discipleship. You lose in order to gain. When Jesus spoke to this man and said to him, go sell all that you have and come follow me, I don't think that that was meant to be understood in terms of loss. It was meant to be understood in terms of the exceptional gain of following Jesus wholeheartedly. And I think about a passage like this one in Matthew 13 where Jesus says, he says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which A man found and covered up, then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Does he give up anything? He sells all that he has, so in a sense he gives up everything, but it's worth it to him because he's found the field with the treasure inside. He says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. This man has found what his life was in pursuit of. The kingdom of heaven and what Christ is offering is meant to be understood in terms of gain far more than it's meant to be understood in terms of loss. And this is how I want you to think about this story through a new lens today. When Peter said, look, we've, we've, lost ev- we've left everything to follow you. Peter had given up a lot. He'd given up early mornings um, catching fish on the beautiful context of the Sea of Galilee. He'd given up barbecued fish on the beach. He'd given up lazy afternoons napping and then, and then chatting with his friends by the fire in the evening. He'd given up all that that's just peaceful, calm, predictable lifestyle. But what had he gained? He'd gained three unbelievable years with the Lord Jesus Christ. He gained a new direction for his life. He gained a part in God's great story. And I want us to think through that lens today. Last time we focused on that one thing. And I was trying to help you to see that when Jesus says to him, one thing you lack, he was diagnosing the problem of this specific man's heart. And I suggest to you that for all of us, there's something. There's one thing, isn't there? It doesn't have to be money. It could be something else. But for all of us, there's something which the Holy Spirit would put his finger on and say, listen, this is the thing which would stop you from following me or from being a fully committed disciple. And certainly we can think of it through that way in terms of loss, in terms of sacrifice, in terms of what we have to give up and turn away from and kill in order to follow Jesus. But what do we gain? Let me show you. I'm going to make quite a few points today, so we're going to be fast-paced. You gain, first of all, lasting wealth. 
This is what Jesus said to him. The first thing he says to him, he says, go sell all you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Now, I'm not going to develop this at length. We talked more about money last week. But what I want you to understand is this. The discipleship and generosity go together. They are inseparable realities in the life of the Christian. And the reason is simple. The gospel that Christians believe is not of what you can do for God, but what he has done for you out of his grace, out of his kindness. The word grace just means gift. God has done everything for us in Christ. He has lavished upon us his generosity. He has given to us a gift. Which is why a miserly Christian cannot possibly have understood the gospel. And I think that in some ways, how we handle our money in this world is a rapid diagnosis of our spiritual health. This is something that you see in the New Testament. I'll give you a couple of examples of this. There's the example of Barnabas. We first meet Barnabas at the end of Acts chapter 4, when the church was... Uh, giving everything that they had. They were sharing. They had everything in common. It says that people were selling all their possessions and laying the proceeds at the apostles' feet. And then Barnabas is introduced this way. It says, Joseph, who was also called Barnabas, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. That is a turning point in that man's life. He had been a Levite. Levites were not supposed to possess any land. But the Lord didn't change that man's heart. What changed his heart was the grace of the gospel. The fact that God had lavished kindness upon him he didn't deserve. And suddenly, he has no interest in his land anymore. He sells it, gets rid of it, lays the proceeds at the apostles' feet. Then he lives a life of extraordinary, passionate devotion to the cause of Jesus. But you ask me, how do we know that this man loved Jesus? He sold the field. Another example is Zacchaeus. In Luke chapter 19, we meet this little man who is a tax collector, despised, I think full of self-loathing as much as anything else. And when he meets Jesus, what does he do? He's been stealing from people in his office of tax collector. He's been robbing the poor. And he's been making himself rich. And then he tells Jesus, he says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. What does Jesus say to him? Listen carefully. He says, today salvation has come to this house since he's also a son of Abraham. In other words, the evidence that satisfied Jesus that this man understood the grace of God is because he no longer was grasping. If God has lavished goodness upon us, We can be free with the things we possess. Generosity and discipleship are intimately entwined. You cannot separate them. It's the evidence that you know the gospel. But what I want you to understand here is that if you ask the question, is this kind of generosity selflessness? I think in some ways the answer is no. Because Christ promises this rich young man treasure in heaven. In other words, don't give up your possessions in order to just deny yourself. Give them up in order to have something better. Lay aside these junk bonds, this treasure on earth which will rot and rust and be stolen and be destroyed and have possession in eternity 
which will never fade. Christ is really clear on this in Luke 12. He says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. In other words, friends, listen, you do not lose, you gain. Sadly, this guy didn't understand it, but you gain, you do not lose. Here's the second thing. You gain also a broader horizon and an enlarged world. Now, listen, carefully. This is where I get this from. When Jesus says he who has left house or brothers, sisters, mother or father or children or lands, house or lands will have a hundredfold in this life. Now how on earth can you have a hundredfold house and lands? I think what Jesus is talking about here is the way the gospel can radically change the direction of your life. I'm not saying that all of us are called to becoming full-time missionaries. Some of you will. It's been a long time since we've talked about the call to missions. Maybe that thought has never crossed your mind. Some of you, Christ will call to the mission field. To give your life. To spend your life for the gospel. But not all of us will, will we? But accepting Christ reorders your life entirely, regardless of whether you become a missionary or not. Thinking again about this choice to live in London. When we started this church, we started with nine of us. And those folk who started the church with me, we had different ideas of where our future would take us. The places we would live, the homes we would own. But suddenly when we were swept up in the vision and the mission of what we were doing here in London, all of our lives changed. Our priorities were reordered according to the gospel and what Christ wanted from us. Houses and lands, our prospects of that was shifted. It was changed. We were redirected. It's a warning to you, by the way. Some of you have come from overseas or from other places to come and work and to study in London. And maybe church was a bit of an afterthought to you. You thought, I want to go to that university. I want to get that job. This is my career, the path I'm on. And then afterwards, maybe through bumping into a friend or Googling, you found church. There's a secondary element in your life or even a tertiary element. One of the things that most amazes me is that when people begin to fall in love with Jesus to a degree that they never thought they would, all the priorities shift upside down. Suddenly people say to me, the reason I'm in London is because I want to be part of what we're doing here in this church. And they buy homes, not because it's an investment necessarily. It is, but not because of that. But because they want to put down roots. So when Jesus says, you give up houses and lands, but you gain them. I think he's saying that you... He, The gospel radically redirects your life. And I I want to put it to you like this. What is it that you gain? It's not that you'll get a hundred houses or a hundred pieces of land. I don't think that's what he meant. But I think what he meant was this. That the gospel expands your world. Before you knew Jesus, you had a myopic view. A small vision for your life, perhaps. But when you come to know Christ and when the gospel settles deep in your heart, you become a world Christian. And the, the, the gospel enlarges your sense of 
what God is doing in the world. I care about churches in distant parts of the world and brothers and sisters all around the place who are doing things for Christ. I care about you guys and what your futures will hold. And I feel a sense of the possession, the joint possession inheritance that we are on Christ's mission and Christ is inheriting this planet. It's his land. This is his world. The gospel brings that shift in perspective radically in your life. You might lose one vision for what your life was here to accomplish, to own this particular type of house in this kind of place and have this kind of comfort. You lose that, but what do you gain? You gain the whole world. This young man, unfortunately, went back to his small vision. But look at what happened to the disciples. God gives them a world vision. Peter ends up in Rome, crucified upside down. It's understood that Thomas went down to the south of India. The church down in Kerala there traces its roots right back to the Apostle Thomas. It's extraordinary, isn't it? These men became citizens of the world because it's Christ's world. You gain a broader horizon. You gain an enlarged world. Here's the third thing you gain. You gain a worldwide family. How does following Christ affect your family relationships? Well, maybe not at all. If, number one, your family loves Jesus the way you do. Or number two, you take great care not to be too radical in your faith so as not to cause offense, so as not to frustrate your family members. But Jesus showed that when people follow him wholeheartedly, what happens? It creates great tensions within the biological family. I'll read to you a couple of verses which may be shocking to you. In Luke 14, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. When we read such sayings from Christ, I do not think, of course, that he means that we are literally to hate our families. But what he means is that when you come to understand the priority of Jesus and of the gospel, all of your relationships in life are reordered. Christ comes first. It's the same in Matthew 10, where he puts it like this. He says, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. When somebody follows Christ and gives him their life entirely, it can bring about a very real sacrifice in terms of your biological family and the distance that can come between you and them. But what do you gain? This is the question we're asking. What do you gain? The answer is obvious, isn't it? Jesus says you gain a hundredfold in this life. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children. Why? Because you become a part, a meaningful part of God's worldwide family. And in many ways, the church of God, the spiritual family of God, begins to take priority even over your biological family. This ought to be shocking to us. This is radical. This is what Christ taught. Now, I know that some of you want to push back on that. But just intuitively, in your heart, you feel, that's too much. I want to go to church, but I don't necessarily want to give myself to the church. 
All I can say to you, apart from, well, just reconsider the words of Christ and his passionate call to be part of his body. All I can say to you, friends, is this. That personally and through observation, you never really discover the preciousness of the body of Christ until you go through suffering. I can say that from my own experience. That every ounce of energy I've devoted to the church family has been repaid multiple times over when we've gone through hard times. Going through suffering, going through hardship. That's when you realize this family means something. And Jesus says you gain a worldwide family. You gain many more brothers, many more sisters, fathers and mothers than you would have done if you'd gone off like the young man and walked away from Jesus. This is why as well, friends, we're calling you. If you're part of this church, don't just come on a Sunday. Be a part of this church. Be in one another's lives. Be in a home group. Be fully devoted because you get back what you put in many times over. Let me tell you a fourth thing. You gain Christ himself. Let's not forget the heart of this man's dilemma. When Jesus said to him, sell all you have, he also said, come and follow me. And that was his choice, wasn't it? Either go home to your wealth, go home and enjoy the nice food and the comforts and the servants and all the stuff that you have. Or, he said to him, come and follow me. And a bit later, where it says that those who have given up houses and brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, lands, for my sake, he says, for my sake, it's to gain Christ. Now, this is where we go badly wrong, friends. Because we think mainly, don't we, in terms of the things we've given up, the relationship that we had to turn away from, or the possessions we had to renounce, or the career that we laid down for the cause of Christ, the ambitions that we put on the cross and crucified. And we think in terms of what we lose. But Jesus is encouraging this man, he's encouraging all of us to think in terms of what we gain, and primarily in terms of the gaining of the knowledge of Jesus Christ himself. Christ is better. Christ is better. I mean, who of us in our right mind wouldn't give up everything that you have for the opportunity to have been in his shoes at that moment and to have made the right choice and to have actually walked with Jesus from that day on? Do you honestly think there's a competition there? To be with Christ. To know his love for you. To know that you're serving the one who owns the universe. The one for whom all things were created. The one who is the telos or the end or the purpose of all creation. To be with him and to know him is life. That's what Paul came to this conclusion. Doesn't he say it so vividly in Philippians 3? Let me read you these words. He says, whatever gain I had, and he thinks back to his former life and how he had a lot of things in his former life. He had the respect of his peers. He had success as a Pharisee. He had honor in that world. He said, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, the surpassing worth. That's it, isn't it? Of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order 
that I may gain Christ. Friend, if you've not given your life entirely to Jesus, you don't know what Paul is talking about. You don't understand the preciousness of this Savior. And he may demand everything from you, but it's no sacrifice. It's no sacrifice. It's all rubbish, as Paul said, because of the surpassing worth, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He's the pearl. He's the treasure hidden in the field, isn't he? Let me tell you a fifth thing. You gain a profound purpose to your life. Now, what I think was being, on offer, being offered to this young man and what had already been offered to the 12 apostles was this, that they were instantly plugged in to the mission of God in the world. Their lives were no longer about their small, me-centered vision of what their lives were supposed to be lived for. Suddenly, they were plugged into the grand mission of God, which is what Jesus is saying here when he says you give up house, brothers, sisters, mothers, father, children, lands, for my sake, and what? For the gospel. Now, as I said earlier, you might object to say, well, not all of us are called to be missionaries, are we? We're not all called to go on the mission field and live fully for the gospel in that specific way. But in a sense, I disagree. It's true that we do not all have the same role or function within the mission of God. We're not all called to necessarily to be preachers or all to be missionaries. I know that's true. But we do all have and share the same ultimate purpose, which is the fame of Jesus Christ on planet Earth. Think about how the Second World War played out in Britain. The Second World War was a a total war in the sense that it touched every single life in the country. There were, of course, the men who went on the front line and flew aircraft with no expectation of ever coming home. But there were also the milkmen who kept delivering milk. And there were the women who worked in factories manufacturing bullets. And there were the families who accepted rations because it helped the war effort. In other words, there was not a single person in the nation who was not in some way engaged with the ultimate purpose of defeating Hitler and protecting freedom. And in a sense, that is what the Christian life is. There's no such thing as a spectating Christian. You don't become a Christian and sit on the grandstands observing others get on with the work. When you become a Christian... This is now your mission. And it takes different shapes in all of our lives. And it doesn't mean that it's not mutually exclusive with the other callings God calls us to. The richness of work in this world that's done to his glory. The glory of of raising children or of, of loving people and all the kind of things that we're called to do. But all of it, all of it is in the grand flow of what Christ is doing in this world. We are all about one ultimate purpose. The fame of Jesus Christ. And I want to suggest to you that that is a great gain. One of the deepest needs of the human heart is to feel a sense of purpose. It's to feel that we know why we're here on planet Earth. This is why we see people violently and with whiplash jumping from one cause to another in the secular world. It's because people are searching for meaning and searching for purpose in an affluent age. If we already have everything we need, then what do our lives become about? Well, they have to become about some great grand cause. 
And most of us do not want to live wasted lives, do we? One of my standout and favorite verses in the Bible is a saying that Paul gives when he's saying goodbye to some dear friends, some elders of the church in Ephesus in Acts 20. And he really pours out his heart to them. And as always, you get a glimpse into the heart of a man who is sold out for Jesus. And this verse particularly has been very important to me. It's the first verse I preached on in our old church when I began a preaching ministry there. He says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He's saying no amount of cost or sacrifice would hold me back from this great cause. I am here for Jesus to make him famous in this world. And I want to encourage you, friends, to follow Jesus as this young man was being invited to do. To give up your wealth, to give up your possessions, to give up the old ways, to give up things that you thought you could never let go of is not a loss. It's a gain because you get swept up into the eternal purposes and the plans of God. Back in the year 2000, the preacher John Piper was preaching to a crowd of young people at a conference called One Day. And he challenged them in this way, and I want to read you at length this quote from his sermon. I've done it before. I'll probably be quoting this until I retire. Actually, he says you're not allowed to retire, so that goes against the theme of what he's saying here. So let me just read it to you anyway. He says, to make a difference in the world, you just have to know a few great, unchanging, simple, glorious things and be set on fire by them. But I know that not everybody in this crowd wants their life to make a difference. There are hundreds of you. You don't care whether you make a lasting difference for something great. You just want people to like you. If people would just like you, you'd be satisfied. Or if you could just have a job, a good job and a good wife and a couple of kids and a nice car and long weekends and a few good friends and fun retirement and quick and easy death and no hell, if you could have that, you'd be satisfied even without God. That is a tragedy in the making. He gives the example of two old ladies who had been on the mission field and perished there. He says, is that a tragedy? And he says this, no, I tell you what a tragedy is. I'll read to you from Reader's Digest what a tragedy is. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler playing softball and collecting shells. That's a tragedy. People today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you. Don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you. Don't buy that dream. The American dream. A nice house. A nice car. A nice job. A nice family. A nice retirement. Collecting shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account of what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. (laughs) And I've got a nice swing and look at my boat. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it. A couple of last points. You gain the privilege of suffering. 
And we assume that suffering is always a bad and a negative thing. Which is why Christians are trying their darndest to avoid it in these days. I think the church today reminds me of a needy boy or girlfriend desperate to be liked by the world in which we are and being despised as a result. When Jesus said to his disciples here that you'll receive a hundredfold now in this time and then he lists among the things you gain, he says persecutions. We naturally read that as a warning, don't we? We say, ah, but there's a downside You'll get persecuted. In many ways, I don't think this was a warning. I think it was an offer. Because in Christ's mind, in the mind of those disciples who are fully devoted to him, the opportunity to suffer for the cause of Christ is a privilege and an honor. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul puts it vividly like this. He says, for this light Momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I would not describe his sufferings as light and momentary. But he says they're preparing an eternal weight of glory. The opportunity to suffer for Jesus is a great gain for the Christian. I want to just ask you, do you actually believe that? Because when we look at the, the difficulty of our lives and the choices we've made to follow Jesus and the way in which we might suffer as a result, perhaps through self-denial, perhaps through the things that you lost, let go of and walked away from, in our worst moments we sink into self-pity, don't we? We think I'm spending myself for Jesus. And I feel exhausted. I feel stretched thin. I've lost so much. And I want to suggest that that is not the way we should look at our lives. We look at the eternal weight of glory. And you realize it's all gain. Christians these days are so worried, aren't they, about burnout. As though you could spend too much energy for Jesus. I'd rather die young for Christ than live into old age with an insipid and tepid faith. Let me tell you a last thing, he says. You gain eternal life. This is where this account begins and ends. The man comes to him and says... Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? When Jesus looks at his disciples at the end of this story and says that you'll gain a hundredfold in this time, he says, with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Please, let's not forget what this man really lost here. He kept his wealth, but was he the richer for it? Absolutely not. Not. He lost what was of priceless value. Now why doesn't this resonate more powerfully with us so that we feel and we see among the church 
a deeper devotion and a stronger passion and a more wholehearted commitment to the cause of Christ? Why is it that we are so content to live lives that look barely indistinguishable from the people around us in this world? Why is that? I think it's because we have become so short-sighted and so attached to this life and this world. Our priorities and our desires and our dreams are almost an exact copy of the person who sits next to you at work. And what happens when this world is all you can dream about? I'll tell you what happens. You panic when there's a an infection that breaks out. Because health is everything. This life is everything. You become less hungry for the world to come. I want to tell you, friends, that New Testament obedience is always motivated by eternity. This is why... At the end of Paul's life, one of the most precious and poignant moments in all of the New Testament for me is when he wrote his second letter to Timothy, who was his son in the faith. And that letter is written from a dank, dark jail cell where Paul is awaiting his execution. And so it's important to me when I read this letter to understand what what were the priorities of this man. How did he run his race? And he tells us how. In 2 Timothy 4, he says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Nobody has lived a life that is radical for Christ who has not felt that eternity was more important than this world and this life. I want to close just by mentioning to you very briefly the story of Jim Elliot. Five of these young men, Jim Elliot was among them, went to Ecuador to go and share the gospel with a very small, unreached tribe called the Orca tribe. And when they landed on the beach, on one occasion when they went to see this tribe, they were, they were killed. Five Orca Indians killed these five young missionaries. In 1956, when Jim Elliott was just, I think, 29 years of age. And when reflecting on that years later, his widow, Elizabeth Elliott, said that People had thought it was a nightmare and a tragedy that this had happened to these young men. And she said, it's only a nightmare and a tragedy for those who did not understand his credo. What was his credo? That he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The gospel does call for sacrifice, but really when you've met Jesus, it doesn't feel like sacrifice. You're giving up what you couldn't keep anyway in order to gain what you cannot lose. Some of you were in a turmoil last week, those of you who are here, thinking about that one thing that Christ would call on you to turn away from. You're in turmoil in your spirit. 
you could only think about what you had to lose. And really, I didn't paint the full picture last week, did I? Because I didn't tell you what you had to gain. And I want you to take those words home with you. To think in your heart, is there anything that you could lose for Christ that isn't worth it? Isn't worth saying goodbye to? Anything. Name one thing. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This is a challenge for some of you who are not Christian. Maybe the reason you've hesitated to cross that line. You're worried about all that you have to let go of. Don't worry, friend. It will feel to you as nothing. It will seem to you to have been rubbish in comparison with possessing Christ. But this battle doesn't end the moment you become a Christian. And I know that for many of you, you've been in the grip of battle, in the fight. The battle for your heart. And I want to urge and encourage you. Is Christ everything to you? Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we know that gathered around your throne, the elders sing of your worthiness. They say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. To receive power and glory and wisdom and strength. Lord, the great battle for our hearts is to feel your worthiness. To recognize that you are the treasure in the field, the pearl of great price. Lord, I pray that all of us would today recognize that, see it, feel it in our gut, to know that you are better. Pray your call from us new repentance from sin, the sins that we haven't wanted to let go of. I pray that there will be folk here today who cross the line of faith and decide to give their lives to you, decide to become followers of Jesus. I pray for those who've been wrestling with the seductions and the temptations of this life. They'd look at it for what it is. They'd step outside and say, look, is it worth it? Of course it's not. Thank you that we can possess you, Lord. We love you, Jesus. Amen.